back to the show. You're at uh, what's next today? Um, very excited today. We've got a gentleman here named Adam Poole. I know he does some angel investing. I know he has a lot to do with the oceans and all the new stuff. Man, I'm really excited to sit here and talk to you. Uh, I know you came out of Massachusetts, so I very rarely get a chance to sit down and talk to you. So what have you been up to? Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, my wife is teaching a intensive course at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies this January on ocean environmental law. So I'm in town for a month, and it's a pleasure to be on your podcast. My background is actually in clean tech. Okay. I was a venture capitalist for many years in Central Europe. And when I was setting up and investing uh, in the clean tech space, it was in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And back when I set up my first of three venture capital funds, there was less than a billion dollars a year going into clean tech. The same is true for oceans today. By the time I finished my uh, venture capital experience, there were tens of billions of dollars going into clean tech, and it was a very established field. And so I think oceans is going to be the next thing like clean tech that comes along. Today it's tiny, even though there is about $3 trillion of ocean business going on. There's very little financial capital going into it. There's corporate and there's Defense Department money of many nations, but um, there's not much financial investor interest in it so far. But in the, I guess, four or five years I've been doing it, I've seen it doubling every year for the each year. Mm. That's amazing. So tell me a little bit about what, now you, what you're looking for is um, new innovations in <clears throat> green technology is what you're looking for. And looking for different things that you can invest in, or maybe invest other people's money into that you think is going to be up and coming in uh, trying to uh, square our oceans away and try to clean them up and, you know, what, what What exactly are you looking for? Tell me what, you know, this is a very interesting field to me. I'm such an ocean guy. I, You know, uh, Jacques Cousteau was my hero growing up. I always thought I'd be the one to find the Titanic. It's just the oceans always just meant everything to me, you know. And now I, here I am out on uh, Monterey Bay. It's one of the most uh, beautiful, scientific also, is probably why you come here. There's a lot of scientists in and out of here. So what, tell me, what, what what are you looking for when you're looking at different products? You are a real ocean guy, that's for sure. I, I know that with your boats that you've fixed up and sail and uh, motor. Um, we're looking at many of the same trends we see on land, but they're now moving to the ocean for the first time. Um Efficiency, we've had a lot of investment into efficiency on the terrestrial side, whether it's building efficiency or transport efficiency, logistics efficiency. We're beginning to see the same thing on the ocean. Um, we also take farming. Farming in the 19th century was a guy with his farm, and he maybe had 10 acres um, and then over time, what happened was it became industrialized. It got 
bought up and it got into big industrial farming. Hundreds, if not thousands of acres. Exactly. Um, and they, it was very scientific done when it was done at an industrial scale. They knew exactly how many grams of feed to give to every, each cow or each chicken. And it actually became a little bit unsanitary or unhealthy to have the all these animals packed into buildings. But they're now learning from that again on land and getting more natural. But what's happened in the ocean is that historically, and this is really up to the 21st century, it was a guy and his boat. And he went out and pulled lobster traps or he went fishing with his mates and they sometimes they had big fancy equipment. Most of the big fancy equipment was not the day boat sort of thing. It was out in the ocean for months at a time and it was an industrial factory. Sure. Um, what's happening now is that the guy with a single boat is actually getting technology, whether that's technology to find the fish or whether that's technology to selectively catch the fish or whether that's technology to actually farm the fish. Aquaculture is becoming a huge thing. Remember, 70% of our planet is ocean. So if we're trying to feed 9 billion people, one of the most logical places to uh, get the food is the ocean. Now, most of that will be way offshore, but there's still a very unintensive use of the ocean today, um, even though it is massively much more intensive than it was 150 years ago. It's still not scientifically intensive. And so what we're trying to do is invest in the technologies that facilitate very smart, wise farming of the ocean. Um, I'll give you an example. There's a company that makes cameras that go into fish pens that are floating in the ocean. And it, you know, five years ago, what did you do? You shoveled the feed into the fish pen and it dropped through and the fish ate it, but you didn't know when it was time to stop, so you shoveled lots and lots of bags in, and it fell down to the bottom all the way through the pen because the fish were full. And it polluted the water down mm. below because it was just too much feed. So this company called realdata.ai invented a camera that you put at the bottom of a pen, and it will look and find when the feed is actually getting all the way through the fish and automatically tell you, stop feeding. Because once the feed is starting to filter to the bottom, you don't want to do it anymore. Right. That's amazing. You know, it's you, you, you can't even imagine all the little doodads and all the different things that are, uh, you know, people are working on. How many times a week you say, oh, why didn't I think of that? Doggone it, you know? It's just a very simple idea, but just took somebody to put it together, you know? Yeah. And that's what you're looking for, some smart kids that are doing some, are you, are it like uh, pollution, like chemicals, that kind of thing, or more, yes. are you just trying to, like the fish 
population as far as feeding. I know you've talked about like kelp and that kind of thing and uh, making that into food, maybe like a soybean or something, if you could make it into another food or something like that. The technology is certainly there, so we could really use the ocean if we don't abuse it and dump so much chemicals and plastics and Everything else, that's just crazy. Give me a little background on it. Where, where'd you grow up? Did you... Cambridge, Massachusetts. Oh, okay, yeah. You came right out of Cambridge. Yeah, my dad was a professor at MIT. And, Ooh. Um, I got a job offer in 1991 to move out to Poland uh, because the wall had come down. And I moved there and helped set up the first commercial bank after the end of communism. And then the Polish government asked me to take on 34 different companies and help turn them around, which I did. And then I set up my three venture capital funds that invested in Gleantech. So all sorts of different businesses in Poland. All sorts of different businesses. Not just ocean, yeah. Correct. Right. We also did the first private gas company in Romania. Wow. First private wastewater company in Hungary. And we built the largest wind park in Europe at the time, 600 megawatts in Romania. Holy cow. So we did all sorts of clean tech things. Right. And that put me in good shape for going into the ocean because many of the trends are the same. You mentioned them. Um, pollution. Right. We do invest in companies that are doing sensors for the oceans because the ocean basically is a difficult place to work. It's got a lot of storms and currents. Right, right. You know that as a sailor. Sure. And so the building the sensors is a that will last is a tough thing, but people are doing it. Um, energy, very important coming from the ocean. The only segment of the ocean where spending is declining is oil and gas. Well, that's good. Yeah, it's good. And what's compensating for it, or even more compensating than um, the decline, is the starting of offshore wind. Mm. And that's wow. that uses many of the same technologies to anchor the turbines out there. And now we're going to see a lot of it soon on the West Coast as well. It's already happening on the East Coast, and it's happening very intensively in Europe. Well, I've been hearing about that for decades. Obviously, you drive across the Midwest or anywhere around the United States, you're going to find these huge, massive windmills, just acres and acres and acres of them. And, you know, I've been hearing for decades, let's put them out in the ocean. I mean, it's a flat. It's just always blowing out there. It's like, that's a fantastic idea. But I don't know if it ever took off. So it clearly is, huh? It took off very much in Europe. Because you're not taking up land, you're not, you know, eating up farmers. I guess it doesn't take a whole lot of land anyways, you know, but out in the ocean, it's just a constant wind. Correct. You know. It's it's great to put them in the ocean That's for the wind. That's what I would think. It's less good because you get amazing storms. Mm. And those waves really batter those. Ah, right. So the support system for the turbine has to be really strong. Really and, you know, it's hard to anchor it, particularly on the West Coast, where it drops off so quickly into mm. several hundred meters of depth. Right. There's a whole lot of below the water, huh? Correct. To get to the ground. Exactly. <laughs> it be huge. In the East Coast, where it's a much more shallow uh, continental shelf, 
you and you can go just down 30 meters and so you can put anchor lines down sure. and it's much easier to do but they have now developed floating turbines oh no kidding yep so you don't need to have nearly the superstructure or the understructure you might right. say to anchor them that you did in the past yeah maybe they'll be a little smaller than the ones on land out of those you know I was driving down the road one day and uh, down the expressway and a semi went by me with just one uh, blade. blade and it was quite a bit longer than the flatbed semi trailer that was on it's, it gives you a little bit of pers- per- perspective you know when you're driving by and it's that far in the air you don't realize how huge that thing is until you're sitting right next to it it's like holy cow yeah, in a storm, you could rip those little turbines right off, right? In an ocean storm like that. I've seen those things on fire driving down, you know, you know, way up there where they caught something. And maybe that technology wasn't completely up yet. Some are older, some are newer. But uh, it's a big challenge. It is, I bet. You know, these things are tens of megawatts. Right. Um, and, you know, that can power a small town. Sure. Uh, one of these turbines. And in fact, the trend is to get bigger and bigger because there's so much more efficiency. And if you have to do an anchoring system, it's much more efficient to do one anchoring system for something big than 10 anchoring systems for something that's smaller. That makes sense. So you're going to see many more of these 100-meter-long blades. That's more than a football wow, field. Wow, truly. One blade one blade right exactly they are huge that's incredible and they have elevators that take the technicians up to the top sure and you can stand up there and work um one of the companies that i have been mentoring uh provides virtual reality glasses to train the technicians on how to do repairs in these wind turbines on land because it's very expensive to bring them out to an offshore wind turbine to train them in real situ. Right. But So they have created this system where you put on the VR headset and you feel like you are in a wind turbine that's offshore, but you're sitting in a room just like you and I are sitting in a room. Crazy. And you get to practice right. doing your repair. Well, that would work. It works. You bet it would. I mean, I've never used the goggles, but I've you know seen people use them on TV and what they're looking at and that type of thing. You would almost literally be there up on top of the turbine, wouldn't you? You know, all everything's right there. What a great way to train. It is. No it's a, risk, no spending. It is. Great idea. Wow. It's a great idea. Great investment. Yep. Yeah. How about that? Um, and one of the interesting things that they did to make it even more realistic was they built in a little bit of sway so that because when you're actually on a turbine uh, more than 100 meters up in the air, that thing rocks back sure. and forth. So. They built in a rock back and forth. <laughs> and boy, I've seen people get a little seasick. That's funny. When they're using these goggles right. because it's so realistic. Keep your eye on the horizon, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like being on a sailboat. It's like, don't go below. Exactly. You to get your stomach will spin. Exactly. For sure. Oh, how interesting. So, uh, so you and your wife came out here. You're both in ocean. Yes, yeah, she's an ocean lawyer. 
focused She's an on ocean the lawyer. policies I see. that go behind uh, protecting the ocean. You guys must have some interesting conversations over the <laughs> breakfast table, huh? <laughs> we, we sure do. Uh, uh, she, she says, "Well, you know, how do we uh, how do we protect against illegal fishing?" And I go, "Oh, there's some great technologies. We've got some satellite <laughs> technologies. There's a, a great uh, company called Fishing Watch that uses satellite imagery to trace." Boats that may be entering protected fishing grounds. And many times these people actually turn off their vehicle identification system. I bet they do. Because they think they're not being watched. But you can use synthetic aperture radar and you can use the particles coming out of the smokestack to track them. Because both of those have unique signatures. And so even though they've gone dark, you can still see their wake. You really? Of course. Right. You can't get away. That's a big boat, though. That's a big you know. boat. You know, I've seen, I, I don't remember what I was watching, but I don't know if it's maybe a green piece or something like that. There was a big old boat. They were chasing down three fishing boats that I don't know where they were from. They were in a spot where they shouldn't have been. And they knew they shouldn't have been there. You That's know? right. And so this boat that went after them, and then the other two boats started circling him, so that one could get away. And it was just, it was like a, it was craziness out there. So, I mean, so what do you do once you identify him, then just find him? Really, you can't go out there and do anything without putting yourself in harm's way. Because well, they're, they're ruthless compared, you know, from what I could see out there. Correct. They don't care. Absolutely correct. You know, people like Ian Urbina, the reporter, have documented the slave trade that basically happens Truly, on those boats. Really. Um, and so it's really up to government. Yeah. So a group like Fishing Watch, which is getting all this information in, and so it can spot, for example, there was a specific uh, Chinese fishing trawl, squid trawler or squid <laughs> boat that would approach the Argentinian waters. Mm. And it, the minute it would get close to Argentinian national waters, it turned off its vehicle identification system. No, they know what they're doing. Exactly. And they it did this 30 different times. Really? Yes. So it was clearly repeat behavior. Right. And guess what? Fishing Watch just notified the Argentinian authorities, this boat is sneaking into your waters and right. taking your fish. Well, it's up to the Argentinians if they exactly. want to prosecute. And yes, they did. You know, they... Next time they were waiting for this boat, cross the boundary. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. <laughs> With a big gunship, probably. Exactly. You know, right. That's right. It's not for you and me to go after these Exactly. It's, it's dangerous out there, man. It is. You know, you get a, um, a country like China, and basically they are in charge of their businesses. Yep. It's not a free market like ours. These businesses and fishing businesses are actually owned by China, correct? That's right. It's a national So we're not business. going after some Joe that owns some fishing company. They're getting they're getting their orders from above, I would imagine. I don't know that for sure. But, you know, it's dangerous out there because it's, you know, they're telling them, go feed our people. That's right. And I get it. I get it. You know, they... Hungry people are exactly. unhappy people. <laughs> but that's where kelp 
um, and other seaweeds come in. Right. Uh, they can produce a lot more protein and food close to shore. And one of the companies we've invested in provides a basically a wintertime revenue stream for fishermen who can't go out and fish during the winter because it's too rough. It's too rough out there, yeah. So you plant the kelp in the beginning of the winter, October in the northern hemisphere, and it grows all winter long. You don't have to tend to it, and it grows. And then come spring, April, March, April, May, you can go out and harvest it. And so you've got a cash crop that is a wintertime cash crop. Right. And That then, you don't really have to tend, really, huh? No, you just have to wow. set the lines and it will grow on its own. And as you know, here in California, it can grow as much as a yard a, a day. Now, most They're of the time monstrous. it doesn't. They, they grow really right. rapidly. Yeah, you see them washed up on the shore, and they're you know as big as around as a baseball bat. Exactly, they're massive, massive plants coming off the bottom. And you you may or may not know that kelp actually helps the climate in two different ways. One, it sequesters carbon more efficiently than trees do. No kidding. Yep, didn't so know that. Mangroves and kelp are the most, and seagrasses are the most efficient sequesterers of carbon. So when you these things grow, they're better than trees at storing carbon away. But all three of them, well, certainly seagrasses and kelp break off and fall down and degrade and then they release their carbon again. So it's not a long-term storage, it's I a see. short-term storage. But you can take the kelp that you farmed and grind it up, dry it, grind it up and feed it to cattle. Mm. And it acts as a probiotic and means that the cattle do not belch methane, which is a huge source That's huge. of methane going into the atmosphere. And so if you can stop the belching of the cows by feeding them the kelp, you will actually contribute massively to a reduction of the, the climate problem. Well, yeah, global warming and the whole stuff, the whole thing, huh? Exactly. Wow. So You're covering the whole gambit by, <laughs> by covering the ocean, man. I'm telling you what, it kind of controls the whole earth. It does. You know, it's uh, it's it's crazy how much, you know, like I said, 70%. I, I was joking around with your wife and, you know, I said, what are you doing now, holding the world on your shoulders? He's like, no, just half the ocean. It's like, well, the ocean's a whole lot more than half. <laughs> That's a lot of weight on your shoulders. It's so, a lot of weight. And um, it, it goes down very deep, um, you know. Uh, I think the average depth of the ocean, well, what do you think the average depth of the ocean is? Average depth of the ocean. Ooh, tough one. I know there's some spots in Lake Michigan that are close to 800 to 1,000 feet. And uh, I know uh, Lake Tahoe's got to be three times that. So, boy, it's got to be just thousands of feet, huh? Yeah, I think it's 5,000 meters, which is about 15,000 feet. Yeah, I'm an American. I don't know meters. Yeah. <laughs> How many feet is that, sir? About 15,000 15, wow, feet deep cow. is the average depth of the ocean, I'm pretty sure. That's amazing. It is. It's it's very, it's very very deep because we think of like, oh, it's deep. It's 100 feet deep. Yeah. Um, but no, it's a lot of it is very dark. And the aquarium just down the road here, 
is opening up a new exhibit on the deep sea. It's going to come in April or May, I think, is going to be the opening. And you should Mm -hmm. go see it because it's going to have all these really weird creatures that can survive under pressures. It's as if you were taking a car and putting it on top of your body or, you know, a whole building and putting it on top of your body. Exactly. And there's no light and there's very little oxygen. So the aquarium has actually had to redesign its exhibit and its uh, filtering and pumping and all those sorts of things to be able to recreate what is like a mile down. Wow. That's amazing. You know, when I was a youngster, I uh, I used to go up to Lake Superior and we'd go shipwreck diving, you know, on these old wooden hauled ships that have sunk and they just don't deteriorate because it's so cold up there, you know, and, and it's... Uh, it's kind of a uh, unwritten rule. You don't take anything from a shipwreck. You don't disturb that shipwreck, whether it's a spring, whether it's nothing. You just don't. You just don't mm-hmm. take anything with you, you know. And I, and I watch the, you know, and I see the bottoms of the oceans where they just drag fishing stuff across the bottom, and it's like you're just destroying so much. And these bottom dragging fishing, you know, I don't know if you, you know, you find an old beautiful sunken ship and it's just covered in nets because they've snagged on it over hundreds of times, dragging across the bottom, destroyed whatever that shipwreck would have been, whether it may be a tomb, mm-hmm. truly, you know, back in the day. And that's always bothered me. Is there is there something that, you know... It's going to stop this dragging across the bottom because, you know, you see a topical view of the ocean and it's just tracks running all every different direction. And it's like, holy cow, they have no idea what they're dragging over down there. You know, it's things that we've not had a chance to look at yet, but they don't care. It's it's just, it crushes me. It's just like, doggone it, you know. they They have to know that they're, dragging across the bottom who knows what they're who knows what we haven't even discovered yet down there correct what's your what's your take on that it it is it's really sad disheartening it's disheartening and it should stop yeah um, because we don't know what we're dragging across and we don't know all the cool things that are down there exactly they do have some nodules down there that are filled with valuable minerals um nickel, manganese, things like that. And they grow in the millimeters per million years. So they Holy cow. The things that are size of a baseball are fifty million years that's old. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I don't know any about this stuff, but that's what I'm thinking. There's gotta be you gotta be wrecking stuff that is just ancient. Ancient. You, that's you right. can't you can't bring that back. No, you can't bring it back. Um and we haven't actually yet developed any good technologies for catching those fish and scallops and things that are down there in the bottom. But we have developed artificial ways of growing them, you know, fish pens. Right. And one of the very interesting things that we're looking at investing in is a thing called RAS, Recirculating Aquaculture Systems. And these are for cities and towns away from the coast where 
you can grow fish, salmon, tuna, uh, flounders, cod, things like that, that are in basically giant aquariums. Mm-hmm. And you grow them and send fresh fish to the supermarket or the restaurants in landlocked interior cities instead of sending three to five day old trucked fish that have been sitting on ice and coming out of Boston or San Francisco or some or Monterey. Um, now you can actually get nice fresh fish if you're in Denver. Nice. From fish farm. From a fish farm. It's no, like a vertical farm. That's like loaded with mercury. You hear all kinds of things. Is that, uh, I mean, a farm, you know, they say, you know, eat the, the fresh ocean fish. Don't eat the farmed fish. The salmon, maybe that's the only thing. I'm not sure, but it's high in something, uh, you know, you know what I'm saying? Is that? Well, the re- the wrasse, the uh, inland, is actually very clean and pure. Is it? Because it's a recirculating water system and it goes through amazing filtration and they are every pen or every tank is filled with sensors out in the open ocean the high level uh, carnivores the tunas let's say and the salmon um, if they're wild will concentrate things like mercury because they mm-hmm. eat the smaller fish and the smaller fish eat the Plankton and the plankton eat the zoanthelae. And so basically all the mercuries and pollutants in the ocean get concentrated in the wild fish. Oh, I see. The farmed fish are actually cleaner. Really? Yes. That's not what you hear. No. Popular belief, right? Yeah, but they're cleaner because they're fed feed. Right. Um, Now, there's a negative on that as well, which is that you're not getting the wide diversity of different sorts of food. So, for example, farmed salmon often has to add omega-3s, fish oil, basically, to the feed because Mm. it's not naturally getting them. It's not feeding Mm. on other fish. Right. But things like mercury, the farmed ones are much less likely to have a mercury content right. than the wild ones. So the old days, they just didn't circulate the water through the farm well enough. Probably gave them a bad name. Yeah. You know. Exactly. No, so. today, your your farmed fish will be healthier, but less diverse in feed, oh, feed sources. Right, right. So they're basically catching other fish and grinding them up and feeding them to the fish to give them a <laughs> In that, some ways. That's what we what used to happen. I see. Five years ago, even today, it happens to an extent. What has unfortunately or fortunately happened is that a lot of people have substituted soy because it's much cheaper than the, the fit, uh, catch, going out and catching wild fish. But the next generation of feed that's coming along is going to be even better. It's not going to be soy-based. It's going to be based on things like kelp. Kelp and seaweed, sure. And seaweed. And one of the companies we have invested in, a company called Biofin, actually takes all the different additives that need to go in, let's call it fish oil, and wraps them up in lipids, just like your COVID vaccine gets Hmm. wrapped in a lipid. So it gets into the system correctly. So 
biofin wraps fish feed in lipids and thus it gets deep into the fish and gets to where it's supposed to be and you don't waste any. So this is an using a terrestrial technology, as I was talking about before, that now we're applying it to the fishing industry or the aquaculture industry and making it much more efficient, mm. more 21st century than 20th century or 19th century. Right, right. We've come a long way. We have in about 20 years. Yeah, <laughs> right. I think about, you know, 100 years ago when they were fishing out there with rowboats and you know, they had no technology. They were uh, just going by the stars, basically, hoping they could find fish and just keep going until they could. You bring it up to today, and it's just the science behind everything is just amazing. Just amazing. Like you said, finding them and, you know, it's just crazy. What else you got in the fire? We got uh, we got the, uh, the uh, uh, what do you say, the scope that, that's at the bottom of the tanks. Yeah. What else are you working on? You got anything in the, else in the fires? Well, one of the other... So the ocean area has four main economic areas. Mm. Food, which we've discussed, aquaculture. Okay. Um, sensors, which we've discussed. Um, another area is ecotourism, and another area is shipping. Mm. In the ecotourism area, we've invested in a company called Coral Vita, Okay. Which is a way of replanting coral reefs that is much more efficient and causes the reef to grow quicker. And it is basically a coral farm. We didn't know how to do coral farming 10 years ago. Wow. And now we know how to, or at least we know how to do it in a relatively primitive way, I'm sure, by what the people 50 years from now will think. But today... It's a huge new open science that wow. um, nobody knew about a few, even just a few years ago. Yeah. So if you want a coral garden off of your hotel um, or your beach resort, we, we have a way of now planting a coral garden and getting it to grow. Wow. What's uh, you, you hear about them all dying off. You know, you hear, I've seen shows with a, Scientists are crying. They go back to a place they've been 10 years ago and everything's dead. Is it the heat or it's probably more of the change in climate more than poisons or, you know, toxins. But uh, it just seems to be dying off at a just a crazy rate. So you're trying to get that turned around. I know uh, I have a huge aquarium here in the store, you know, and I go down to the uh, the fish store down here in Monterey and he was telling me he's got over $70,000 in just in different types of corals, just in the few tanks that he has. Yeah, that's, it's, it's very slow growing, very expensive, you know, to do and to, uh, to try to turn around at the rate it's dying off now, you know, whatever we can do, I guess. I don't know exactly what coral does for well, the ocean, but. It provides a lot of habitat. Do tell. Um, uh, but I, I will come with more optimism because it is actually very much the toxins that are running off the land that is killing off the I corals. See. Oh, okay. It's, it's not so much coming off the boats or anything. It's actually washing off the land. Totally makes sense. It's the fertilizers. 
people ah, apply too many fertilizers. Right. It's the sewage. It's the plastics. Yeah. It's those sorts of things that are flowing off land onto the coral reefs right. that are, are stressing it so much that when the temperatures go up, they die. Ah, right. But Coral Vita has figured out a way to cause coral to grow much more rapidly. Mm. Um, so what you would have had growing in eight to ten years, you can now get in one year. Wow. Um, and so they, have, they haven't been in business 50 years, so we can't say what it's going to right. look like in 50 years. Sure. But we can certainly say that in the short term, you can get nice short-term early infant growth of coral. Ah. Um, and the, the corals provide a, a lot, mostly ecotourism from the human perspective, but they provide a lot of shelter for all the fish species and they provide the, a lot of protection of the land from storms so you can use them as uh, basically breakwaters so there's a whole bunch of different uses that the corals provide, and that's why resorts in the Caribbean have contracted with Coral Vita to replant their front yard, you might say. Wow. Front yard in the ocean. For sure. Right, right. That's interesting. You know, it's uh, coming from Michigan, coming from the Midwest, you know, it rains every other day. But, you know, I come out to California, and it may not rain for months and months. And, you know, I've thought about that before. You know, you get a big gully washer out here, you know, and everything is so dirty and nasty. And, you know, it in one huge rainstorm, imagine how much crap that's washing into the bay here. You know, I've thought about that before. If it doesn't rain very often, you know, it gets really nasty. And then, you, you know, you couple that with all of the farmlands around here, you know, we're in the middle of the salad bowl. And the chemicals that got to be running out of those, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to watch, you know, it's, it's crazy to, you know, just cause I love the ocean so much, you know, to see that people just don't care or it, it just doesn't, that's not my department. You know, I farm the land. Well, doggone it. You're wrecking the ocean at the same time. You know, everybody, you know, we got to synergize, I guess we said in the seventies, right. You know, we got to put our heads together, get all these people together. And, you know, cause once like yourself, you're trying to do so much good, but there's so much nastiness and evil and people that just don't give a flying wing ding, you know, it's just, you feel like you're gotta be fighting an uphill battle most of the time. You're right. You know, you're, you're spot on. You hear about the lion fish that are just destroying the East coast. You hear, you know, you hear about, uh, uh these, got in the ships that are trying to map the ocean floor so they're exploding different things so they can read the echo it's like what what would that do to the hearing of a whale i know they don't care but i care you know yep that it is it kind of is it what else are you wrecking down there i know you're trying to get a your purpose whatever you're trying to do but boy they just the human human beings huh Human beings. What is wrong with those knuckleheads? <laughs> <laughs> well, I bring good news good. on both the lionfish and the uh, sonar sounding. Ah. Um, 
one of the companies we're looking at investing in harvests lionfish hey. as an uh, invasive species. Right. And turns them into leather for your watch bands or your boots. Well, about time they found something good to do with those things. Exactly. They're by, by the way, they're also tasty. If you well, they're very them. bony too. Yes. They're very hard to you know. That's that's the problem with them. Uh, I watch a show called SV Delos. It's a mm. sailing vessel, Delos, and uh, they've been on for about a decade and a half, and they travel all over the world uh, just sailing. And they had a scientist on the boat one day, and they were down spear fishing, and he brought up a couple of these lionfish, and I don't know if they were maybe down in uh, 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 South America or something. I don't know where exactly they were. But he cut this thing open and started pulling all the fish out that this thing had eaten in the last hour or so. And he's like, this is a such and such. This is a so-and-so. He's killing off all the species right up along you know, the coast here. It just goes along. It's got no predators. Uh, that eat it, and it just eats all these endangered fish, you know. So, oh, it really killed me. And I was like, holy cow, and, you, and there's so many of them now. So they're just going out and just spearing as many as they can and just throwing them away just to, just to get them out of there. Yeah. Well, now we have a way spear them, great, but now we have a way bring them back to shore and sell them into Inversa, which is a company that, converts them into uh, boots and watch bands. There you go. Grind them up, feed them to the landfish. I don't know. <laughs> you got to feed them oil. I don't that know. would be an interesting idea. Yeah. Sure, grind them up and make something out of them. Exactly. Know, probably some kind of poison to them. They look pretty poisonous. <laughs> yeah, there is some poison. Yeah, but And then on the... Uh, the sonar. Sonar. You, there are ways these days to map the floor of the ocean with light versus sound there you go see um i'm sure that the light which is there's no light down at the bottom of the ocean will be shocking for something at the bottom (laughs) because they will it'll be like a flash bulb going off in their eyes what's that exactly but at least it won't be causing them to go deaf right Um, right we'll turn around and blind them instead i don't know (laughs) well also the the uh uh, light doesn't travel very far yeah. in the ocean, whereas sound travels very far. So, and uh, that's a good point. A sonar will deafen people for thousands of miles, right? Versus the light will be very spot specific. Uh, that's a great point. And once you've moved on twenty meters, fifty meters, you won't be affecting the the things back in the first place, right? Um, and you can use all sorts of different spectrums. In fact, if you look at some of the Schmidt ocean exploration videos, um, you will see that the deep ocean is filled with light from specific fish. So there's lots of lantern fish, for example, and there's lots of jellyfish that glow in the dark. And particularly when threatened, they will glow, and one of them actually sheds its skin, which stays glowing, and then it runs away, and the predator comes and eats the, the glowing you gotta skin. you got to be kidding me. No. That's amazing. It is. It's amazing. And so the, they use light both as a threat and as a protection. They see why I love the ocean so much? It it's is. insane. It is. Every day you can learn something super cool about it. It's just completely, it's like a... 
might as well jump into Mars, you know? It's for like another world. It is. It's another world. Have you uh, thought about siphonophores? Do you know about I them? I have no idea. Well, siphonophores are sort of 150 meter. That's a that's 175 yard long creature. And each one of the segments of the siphonophore is independent, but they join together in order to make a whole. So there are independent segments, which are independent animals that are for the gut, and there are independent animals that are for the brain, and independent animals that are for the locomotion. And they don't work without each other. So they come together in the ocean, they click together, you might say, and create this 160-plus foot uh, long, 160-meter yard long chain and work work along. So it's a being that they're all pretty much the same and then they come together and they pick up their own special job. Correct. And take, that's insane. That's crazy. Exactly. How's that? Just amazing. I don't even know where to go from there. <laughs> they're amazing to look at. Just crazy. There's so much down below that we haven't gotten to, isn't there? I mean, there's got to be depths, like you're saying, that this it's going to be decades before we can get down that deep, I would imagine, just to even find out what's down there. Well, we sent down probes, and one of the fun things to invest in are these new technologies that allow you to sit in the dry uh, ship uh, command center and let this remotely operated vehicle dive down you can drive it around you can say oh look at that thing over there you may have seen just the other day that they found a 90 square mile nesting site for ice fish in uh, antarctica so this is the males go down and clear off a uh, little dinner plate sized area on the seafloor and then the females deposit the eggs and the males stand guard and till they hatch and each male is sitting over its egg spot and they've come across these you know once or twice before you know one or two suddenly they have you know it's something like i think i think there was 90 square miles of these so it's you know 10 miles by nine miles of thousands and thousands of these every six inches just little tinier plate size circles with That's fish right. sitting on them exactly wow so it's an amazing thing and ice fish are amazing they have no hemoglobin because it's too cold so they have clear blood wow that's, wow. That's a, it's a very wow sort of fish. I used to have some glass fish. I don't yeah. know if that's the same thing, but yeah, they're just transparent. Yeah. I look at them and go, why do I have these? I just I can't even see them. <laughs> why do I pay so much money for a fish I can't see? <laughs> it's really neat, though, you know? It is. It's very neat. Technology. Well, let's see. What else do I want to know about the ocean? Um, you know, I, I oil. Fuel, trucking this fuel across the ocean. We clear, you know, 
I've I've heard that we've had we have enough fossil fuel, at least reserved, to destroy the earth. If we burn everything that we have, it would pretty much be unsurvivable. We, the air would not be. But still, every week, these companies are spending millions and billions and billions of dollars to find new ways to extract oil from the earth. I've talked to a couple of different people about this, and it just drives me crazy because there's no real brain at the top. It's a, it's a, it's a profit-driven type of organization that everybody just needs more money. Mm-hmm. You know, why, why? I don't understand why you would invest in more ways to destroy the earth and trying to find ways to get oil out when we already have too much. And we're trying to make this corner of electric cars, you know, all this type of thing that's really come a long way. And it's doing it, you know, I just, I just scratched my head at these, some of these big companies. How, how do you fight this? You're fighting it more from a shipping angle, I guess, right? Correct. So there's some very interesting new technologies that are slowly creeping into shipping. The IMO, quite frankly, the International Maritime Organization, okay. mm-hmm. is not doing a strict enough, strong enough job of forcing the shipping companies to adopt renewable energy propulsion. There are companies out there that have invented ways of getting your boats across the ocean based on wind or hydrogen or ammonia or solar. But, you know, when you build a ship, it's got a long lifetime and nobody wants to scrap what they got at the moment. Right. And until they're they're forced to. And the IMO is the only one that can really force the shipping industry by simply forbidding any fossil fuel burning. And if they did, within you know a decade, we could easily have all of our shipping through cleaner, much cleaner right. sources. Um, you know, hydrogen, is a relatively clean fuel, but mm. to produce the hydrogen, you've got green course, hydrogen, right? Which is hydrogen produced by wind and solar, mm. or you've got I blue see. hydrogen, oh, wow. which is hydrogen produced by natural gas, and it's oh, not wow. so clean. I didn't know the difference. So you have to think about how you're producing these fuels, right? Um, same is true with, you know, PV panels. If you're going to use solar or wind, how are the components that go into the wind turbine or the solar panels produced? Are they produced using coal-fired power plants or are they used by, (laughs) you know, clean stuff? So there's a a whole supply chain to be cleaned, but the IMO is not forcing the shipping world to adapt. On the other hand, you are seeing many new startups in the pleasure boat area. The oh, things okay. like you and I who that are electric powered. Right. Because you know when you drive your motorboat, it's noisy. Right. And people actually like the quiet, just like in driving an electric car. Sure. It doesn't make much noise. So it's really much more fun to go out in an electric pleasure boat and we have seen one, two, three, four, five, six, I guess seven different companies 
come to us for financing mm. in the electric pleasure boat wow. market. And so that's that's a really growing area. And I I suspect that the the pleasure boat area will grow much more rapidly because there's a lot more turnover in it. People sure. buy new boats much more frequently than they buy giant shipping can. Yeah, right. There's a uh, there's another show I watch, uh, and the boat is called Uma, Sailing Uma. And they have just switched over to an electric motor. And they're actually up in the Antarctica now sailing around. And they're trying to get used to their new system coming from fossil fuel, and they've switched over. And now they can be out there as long as they want to be out there. They have absolutely no reason to come in. Yep. They've got wind. They've got a water maker. They've got an electric motor. They've got solar everywhere. There's just no reason for them ever to come in unless they need food. And the and ocean they can has fish plenty of food. That, yeah. You know, right? So it's 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 amazing. You know, like anything else, you're going to have to have it be uh, profitable to change over. You know, I've told you about uh, uh, diving up in Lake Superior and, and checking out these old wooden hull ships and everything. Well, at one time, these were, say, big, beautiful three-masted schooners. Well, as they as they got older and they got deteriorated, it's like, well, then uh, the, they got bought up in Detroit so they could bring iron ore up. Well, then they switched to steam engines. So they cut the masts off. So there was three huge holes in the you know in the in the deck and they just ran steam pipes up through those holes zip zop it's not a sail sailing boat anymore it was more profitable to do coal that's when it switched it wasn't because oh we don't want to pollute it's because it's more profitable you know and i think that's what you deal with all the time how can we make this right but make it profitable also and make it so you know it's kind of a constant fight isn't it it is a constant fight, and that's one of the big reasons for government regulation is we need a level playing field. We need certainty what's going to happen over the next 20, 30, 40 years because wind and solar boats, for example, can be profitable. They have no operating costs, but it costs a huge amount of money to buy them in the first place. Right. Or and convert them. Convert them, exactly. So it, we need to know that the rules against fossil fuels or emissions of fossil fuel exhaust are going to be there for that whole time. And they're not going to be loopholes. They're not going to say, well, you if you, <laughs> if you bought the boat before January <laughs> yeah, 1, right. 2022, you're exempt. Yeah. You know? Well, you don't want to put anybody out of business. Well... Okay, maybe you do if they're polluting that bad, but yeah. Exactly. You don't want to crush the little guy. So well, you have to make an easy transition or, like you say, maybe give a little government funding to be able to help them. Correct. Exactly. Flip it over. You know, this is what happened with solar and wind. At first, many years ago in the 1990s when I was starting to do this, there was su government subsidies that came in. We sold our energy for price of X, and the government paid us Y in addition, and that covered the costs and made it profitable ah, for those early that makes sense. wind and solar parks 
that would not have been profitable, but there's that experience curve, the declining costs as you get more and more experience. And we were at the beginning of it. Sure. Somebody has to shoulder that burden. The learning curve, sure. You bet. Exactly. And it's, you know, should be government, I guess, right? Uh, Anything, whether it's, you know, maybe organizations can get together and do that, but they also have to be profitable, you know. That's interesting. You know, if we could just remove all the subsidies that fossil fuels get today, it would make it a lot more possible for wind and solar to compete. Right. But there's so much <laughs> subsidization and lack of taxation of the oil and gas industry. Mm. We, It isn't a level playing field against the wind and hydrogen and ammonia because those new companies don't have the benefits of the tax breaks, the oil depletion allowances, all those sorts of things that Congress should get rid of. And But then you've got 192 different Congresses around the world that have to get rid of them. Yeah, all different opinions too, I would imagine, from right. one sense to the other. I don't expect Saudi Arabia will remove those <laughs> That's very what quickly. I'm saying, you know, right? <laughs> That's not going to fall off tomorrow. That's right. For sure, yeah, they want to keep cranking out that oil. Exactly. And they want to keep incentive. You know, they're one of the big problems at the International Maritime Organization because they don't want to force the shipping industry to switch over to sustainable fuels because they're using their fuels to power all those boats in a very inefficient way. Right. But it only makes sense, you know. What was I watching last night? Jay Leno's car show, and he's he's got all the '50s cars and '60s, '70s. Well, they had a Tesla on there, and it's just amazing. There's no warm up. There's no noise. You just put your foot on it, and you're gone. There's just power. There's no moving parts. There's nothing to wear out. Maybe there is. I don't know enough about an electronic motor, but it's got to be some type of moving part. But not like a combustion engine. You know, and, and uh, you know, of course, pollution, but you just, you know, there's no warming it up. There's no, there's, just get in. Do you, I don't, do you have a Tesla? Or no, I don't have tried a Tesla. any of those electric cars or electric vehicles? They're, they're lovely, yes. It's got to um, be amazing. There's no choke. You don't have to pull a choke. Right, <laughs> right exactly. I don't think I like it now. <laughs> it doesn't smell like fossil fuel. Oh, I'm sure you can get an air purifier insert that will give it that fossil fuel smell. If yeah, you right, right. Maybe like one of those sound effect things that make it sound like a big old V8. Exactly. Even though it makes no noise. That's right. And we... You can even put on virtual reality glasses and there pretend you like you're driving up. <laughs> There's smoke coming out of it. <laughs> that makes me feel at home. Detroit boy. <laughs> Got to have a little bit of smoke rolling out of that thing. Wow, that's just, that's crazy. What else is going on in uh, electronics and, you know... If we could flip those all over like we're talking in, in the boats and, and shipping, there's there's got to be huge money in making these huge electric motors the size of a Buick. Absolutely. And they're probably all available out there. Well, there's a lot of opportunity to improve. You know, we're seeing in my clean tech investing lots and lots of new battery technologies. Right. And so, you know, lithium-ion batteries 
have a history of catching fire. Mm. And there's many new technologies coming along that will make them safer um, or different chemistries that won't catch fire. So uh, they'll have longer range, they'll mm. have greater energy density. There's all sorts of uh, things that are coming in the battery space. And that will mean that shipping also is much more inclined to use electric boats because you'll have a relatively small battery pack, maybe about the size of this room, and it'll get you across the Atlantic or the Pacific. And when that happens, that's probably not imminent, um, you know, but it might take 10 or 20 years. Then you will have a complete revolution in the electricity and the propulsion world. At the moment, we're getting much more efficient batteries and uh but they're still they're still big heavy clunky by what they will be 20 years from now and um it's very interesting what the individual can do with their electric car so though if you've got a fully charged electric car it can power your house for a day or two and that's very important resilience in storms or out here in California, wildfires, earthquakes, all sorts of things. If you've got an electric car, you've got a power and energy for your home for several days. Um, now, I have heard that. You can take your car and just plug it right into your power and, and it can reverse power your home. Correct. That's amazing. Now, of course, it has to be fully charged. Sure. When... The power goes out. <laughs> yeah, I just figured uh, I, my buddy's got a, like a big Tesla battery on the wall in his garage. Yep. I figured that's where all the energy was stored. It wasn't in the car itself. Well, you can have it in the car itself. So there's enough batteries in there to carry that kind of... Wow, that's interesting. Correct. Or wow. you, you can buy uh, Tesla storage. batteries or storage and put it in your home. Sure. Absolutely. Either one. Uh, and so the car is actually a very interesting idea because you can actually move it around to neighborhoods that may be out of power. So imagine the electric utility had a thousand cars and suddenly the power goes out in that neighborhood. They could drive them all to the neighborhood and plug all those houses in and give them emergency backup power. Right. And then when after that's restored you move it to a different location so it's a it's a lot of resilience that can be in these cars and if they could be self-driving cars then you'd have even more (laughs) wild and weird to say would just drive to wherever the power outage was themselves and scale that up to a thousand foot ship exactly you could pull up to a city and just light them up that's right right absolutely (laughs) you you got it yeah Yep. You know, that's uh, that would follow, sure. Exactly. So this is what we can see on the horizon. Um, it's not quite there yet, but it is progressing there. As humans, as we, if we can imagine it and we can see it in our heads, it'll come. That's right. It'll be there. You just, just, just see it. Just know that it's on its way and. Doggone, it'll be here before you know it. It's just the way the human mind is. It's crazy. Correct. So I'm, I'm a generally an optimist. I do... Good for you, right? <laughs> ...do realize that, you know, government regulations can get in the way. Right. 
For example, it is currently illegal in most states in America to use your car to power your home. Um, so wow. you need to change the regulations yeah. of vehicle to grid, V to G, um, because the grid is not prepared to accept thousands or millions of cars sending their power back into the electricity grid. Right. Um, particularly because they can't track where the car is. At least with a home and solar panels on the home, they know where your home is. It's yeah. not moving very much. The car, the grid is just not prepared for today. It's in one place sending power back in, and tomorrow it's in a different place, and the third day it's in a third place. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, so the, you have to change the government rules to allow that sort of resilience mm. to be there. Wow. But the rules can change. You know, right. they're only made by humans. Yeah. Um, the other thing that makes me pessimistic um, in my generally optimistic way is that we are mostly driven by greed. Yes. And somebody is going to figure out how to make a huge amount of money off of what should be a social good. So that's the only way to get it to come around, though, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, as much as we want to think that we're just, you know, uh, great people. It's, it's just going to take, you know, you're just going to have to accept the greed, accept the way that this is going to have to come around and just wait for it. Well, you know, I, I, uh, I was a builder for, you know, most of my life, build houses. So, you know, I love to watch remodels and flip houses and do that kind of thing. Well, uh, I was watching this uh, this couple on the internet, and they had bought like a, an old water power plant, mm -hmm. and and he owned a, a, a technology company that that did energy and all that type of thing. So they made this amazing, beautiful home out of this old power plant, and he covered the thing with solar panels and everything that you could possibly buy and whatever they didn't use in that home went back to the grid. Mm -hmm. So they were making quite a bit of money. So they were, you know, that, that kind of the idea was they wanted to live for free, mm -hmm. you know, so they made enough money off of the extra money that they were sending back to the grid to pay for their water, mm -hmm. to pay for all the rest of the bills. So I thought, wow, that's amazing. You, you truly can. I mean, there's a, there's that downstroke investment, of course, yeah. you know, but from there on in, you're basically not only living for free, you're helping out your neighbors, you know, and putting more power back into the grid for everybody else that the coal doesn't have to burn to create, right? Absolutely correct. Because but, it's in Europe, that doesn't happen here? or Well, it, it happens. Uh, you know, I know of people who do that up in Davis, for example, really? who have put more solar panels on their house than they need and their electric meter spins backwards. So it's feeding back into the grid. It's feeding back into that? the grid. That's, that's legal. Really? In California. Um, and that works until the vast majority of people are doing it. <laughs> because who's going to... Uh, we don't have batteries big enough to store all that. Exactly. So that's the technology. Well, you know, as a kid growing up in the 60s and 70s, they always told us, you know, it's the the, history, or the, the future is batteries and magnets. Yeah. You know, 
to create lack of resistance. You can run trains and not, they were not even touching the rails. They're just <sighs> flying on, you know, I was like, on wow, cushion, that's, that's yeah. amazing. You know, you know, if you could between solar and, you know, I don't know, you know, it wasn't solar back then. It was just, how can we, you know, do this? Yeah. And that's, uh, that's kind of, that's, that's always been my thought, you know, because you, you, World War One, World Two, I guess you see those old motorcycles that uh, that were a radio car, and the whole back end is a battery. It was so heavy they couldn't get the stupid thing around. You know, it was just, and just the technology. Now we've got you know watch batteries that are running your your phone that can <laughs> run the space shuttle. Basically, there's so much, you know. So I mean, it is. It's clearly coming along. Interested to see what happens, but. Yeah. Uh, well, it'll be a very different world 20 years from now and then 100 years from now. Right, and right. I certainly won't live to see the second of those uh, milestones, right. but I hope to put us on a path that is right. successful so that 20 years from now we don't have to worry about climate change. Right. Um, so that we don't have to be polluting our oceans through all the runoff from land. Right. And that we are using the beautiful oceans to produce amazing fish and kelp and other things like that to feed lots right. and lots of people. Right. And get the cover, the, all the countries behind you. Ah, that's, that's, hard, that's right. the main, that's the main thing. You it know, it, it makes me think of, uh, I've heard like farming. If you have water on your property, you're not allowed to use it. It's like, well, that's ridiculous because they want you using the grid. I don't understand. If you have water on your property, why can't you take your cows out there and feed them? Well, that's not legal. That has to be brought in. Like, what? Wait, hold on. So they can make profit on it? That just is that kind of the way it goes everywhere. Well, that that's why I'm uh, pessimistic about the greed instinct that you exactly, were talking about. Right. Did you know that in Colorado? The water rights are sold separately from the land rights. And you are, you know what a rain barrel is? Yeah. Okay, so that goes underneath your gutter and right. catches. They're illegal. That's what I'm saying. In the state of Colorado because you're not allowed to catch your own water that's We falling. could have made Coors beer out of that water. You bring that back now. That <laughs> 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 just, uh, yeah, it's just greed. It is. It's, it's just greed. So we do need to work heavily, and that's not my job, but it's somebody's job out there to work heavily on limiting the greed and channeling the greed so that it has a purpose that is more than just you and me and the billionaires getting more and more billions. You know, right. some there was a... Uh, some economic study that said that if everybody just had 50 million, they could live comfortably for their whole life <laughs> and there's no need to get anywhere up north of 50 million. So, yeah, I find it gross that people out there have so much, so many billions that they just don't even know what to do with them. And, Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So, I'm in favor of greed at the small scale. I'm not in favor of greed at the gigantic scale. You got a good point there. That greed does drive. Yeah, it does drive. It you know? does. It's you just have to put the you have to put the profit in the right area, right? 
Correct. And that's a real role for government. That's huge. And well, government's broken down. I was going to say, you're going <laughs> to wait for the government to do that? We're going to be waiting for a little bit. Exactly. Well, you guys make a good team, you and your wife, because you're out there, you know, getting the new products out there and shaking them down. And then you got the legal side to kind of bounce off of, you know, that's really cool. That's interesting. That's that's the way it is. Yeah. yeah. What What is she teaching out here? Out here, you you kind of came out here just to you come with her and you get a little like a week or two off, huh? Exactly. You relax a little bit. You needed it. That's right. You know, this is your little chill out week. Oh, you used to come great. out here every every uh, every year, but with the COVID and all that, you kind of skipped last year. I haven't seen you in a little bit. That's correct. You were kind enough to uh, help us out when the business got shut down for ten months, and you know, and I sure appreciate that. Well, I'm glad you're back in business. That's yeah. great. And it's great to see Monterey coming back. Right, um, right. Here's a guy that invests in business that he believes in, and he's sending me money. <laughs> hey, man, I'm telling you what, that made I, me feel good. It really did. I believe in you. Right on. That's so cool. Uh, yep. Um, so she, she teaches lots of the graduate students. Uh, there's usually somewhere between 15 and 20 in the class who are doing ocean... Uh, Center of Blue Economy Ocean Policy course and getting their master's. And mm. so she teaches them all about ocean law beyond national jurisdiction. Within national jurisdiction, everything is often very unique. So Canadian law differs from Norwegian law, differs from French law, differs from American Holy law. Cow, right? But once you get out beyond 200 miles then you start getting into international law. Oh, I see. And that is common for everybody. Right. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody obeys it or everybody sure. understands it the same way. Right. Um, there's, for example, a very interesting debate going on now uh, as to the exclusive economic zones. You may know that those go out 200 miles from your shoreline. Well, what happens... When your shoreline expands, let's say like in Hawaii where volcanoes erupt and more land is created or shrinks, let's say the Maldives or any of the low-lying Pacific Island states where the sea level rise and climate change is eroding the coastline, mm. do you suddenly lose parts of your former territory? Right. Well, so this is a big debate as to whether it's... <laughs> really? Is it the coastline a la 1960 when the rule was set? Is it the coastline of today? Is it the coastline of tomorrow? Don't fight about anything, won't they? Exactly. So that's what she teaches in her course, is how people go about solving these sorts of disputes that uh, arise in international law and is decided by international bodies. Wow, that's exciting. It is. You should have her on this, the show next year. Yeah, next year when you come in town, uh, she's so busy while she's here. She I didn't is. want to bug her, you know. Yeah. She's got a lot of stuff going on. Man, what a great time. I sure appreciate you coming in today. It was a real pleasure. Anything else you want to cover? Anything else that's coming up that's, uh, that you're working on? Or? Well, we're working on establishing a fund Okay. Um, so that people who are accredited investors under the law can invest alongside me and my colleagues in ocean tech. So certainly if any of your listeners are accredited investors and want to participate in this sector, 
feel free to reach out and let us know. Well, Adam Poole, how, how would we get a hold of you? Well, you where, where could they find your work or where could they find out what's going on in your life here? Do you have a... You can uh, Google me or LinkedIn me. LinkedIn, okay. Um, or they can contact you, of course, Steve. Sure. And um, the we also have a website, which is the Sea Ahead Blue Angels, www.sea-ahead.com backslash blue-angels. That's what I was looking for. And they can get to your site from there and see all the fun stuff you're you're working on and investing in. Absolutely. And all the new technology coming up from the deep. Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely coming up from the deep. Whether it's the deeps of our mind or the depths of the ocean. <laughs> oh, I'm stoked. I can't wait to see it. I had a great time today. Hopefully next year you can come in and catch us up on what's going on. It's a pleasure. All right. Thank Thanks. you, kind sir. Thank you.